Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, we're ready to take care of business here. I hope you are as well. You know, we're all in business for ourselves, no matter what we're doing. So if you got a nice cushy J-O-B, you're still in business for yourself. You better see it that way. It's not being paranoid or suspicious. It's just the reality of the way things are. What you do to improve your own skills, create new opportunities for you in the future that can never be taken away. So you're in business for yourself. You know, once you frame it like that, it's really not a quantum leap to decide what other options you may have or to decide that rather than having one customer, you want to have five or 10 or 20. Once you open the door and really understand that you're responsible for what you produce, not just putting in your time, and you are in business for yourself, it opens a whole new plethora of options. Well, this is a time each week where we take 48 minutes to examine the value of our work knowing that we're not content just to put in our time. That's a valuable part of our life. Not the only thing, but certainly a valuable part. And we're not only creating the work we love, but the life we love. So thanks for joining us. I am your host, Dan Miller. I've been doing this kind of work for a long time now, helping people through these inevitable, relentless transitions. So if you're new to our listening audience, welcome in. If you're new to the 48days.net social networking site, I welcome you there as well. You know, sometimes I cringe at calling that a social networking site because it conjures up MySpace and Facebook, and it's certainly different than that. We aren't interested in having people just uh, share the little unimportant details of their lives, not that those are unimportant, but what we're really interested in is ideas that people are developing. And you can ask questions about how to develop your ideas and get advice from a whole lot of other smart people about how to do that. And we're seeing the results of that laid out just day after day where people are putting legs in their ideas, turning them into profitable businesses, going into levels of success that they didn't dream about a few years ago. Here's some of the questions we're going to deal with today. Are government grants difficult to get? Uh, Dan, how do I decide on a price for the pies and rolls I want to sell? Should I find one job and stay with it till I retire? What if I don't want another corporate job? Do I have any options? Why do you promote starting a business when we know most businesses fail? There's an interesting one. Are there still new ideas left to start? Hey, lots of great fodder for our conversations today. I welcome your questions. Thanks for sending those in. You can always submit those on the little template that you're given there at the podcast link at 48days.com. Or you can just shoot those into askdan at 48days.com. Either way, they come right to me. I open those files up when I get ready to sit down and look at what we're going to talk about on the weekly podcast. So this is it. Welcome in. Glad to have you with us. Here's our quotation for the day. Now, this is a this is a little longer, and it's a little challenging. It's one from Martin Luther. Now, not Martin Luther King. Martin Luther, the theologian who lived a long time ago and caused all kinds of turmoil in the church world. This is, and, and obviously, you know, he was a monk and then a priest, but I mean, he lived in that kind of world. But this is what he said. Therefore, I advise no one to enter any religious order or the priesthood. Indeed, I advise everyone against it, unless he is forearmed with the knowledge 
and understands that the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household task, but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. Now that's what he said because he was seeing people who were you know, paid by the church who you know, would pull on their fancy collars and think they were better than everybody else. He says that kind of work, you know, doing church work tends, greatly tends to hypocrisy by reason of its outward show and unusual characters, which engenders conceit and a contempt of the common Christian life. Well, pretty powerful stuff there. I use it sometimes when I'm talking to pastors because there certainly can be that tendency to think that somehow there's a hierarchy of the work that God calls us to do. And there really isn't. I mean, we have to validate the work that your gardener does or that a housewife does in stay home or the guy who brings, we just had somebody drive up here in a delivery truck to deliver a special order that we had done. And I'm delighted we have people like that who do that kind of work well and help us, you know, accomplish the things that we're trying to accomplish. So whatever you're doing, if it's an authentic fit, it uses God's talents that he's given you and you're using it in a way that benefits others, then hold your head high, do it with excellence, regardless of what it is. You know, a lot of times, well, I could go on forever, but I won't. But, you know, a lot of times I talk to people who, you know, are wringing their hands, you know, and golly, you know, they're doing amazing work and what they're doing. I mean, just this last week, I had lunch with a young guy who's an electrical engineer. Now, he makes, you know, $75,000, provides for his family, has a stay-at-home wife, a small child, I mean, just a lot of things in order. And he's wringing his hands, you know, wishing that God would open an opportunity for ministry for him. I'm thinking, my gosh, you know, do you have co-workers? You know, can you be a light in their lives when you're there? I mean, a lot of times I think people are looking for their ministry and they're already in it. They just refuse to see it as such and think that there's something special about, you know, going across the ocean to talk to, you know, people on that side of the world rather than here but we have to be careful about identifying you know what is your ministry I mean I I grew up as a son of a pastor and I really had this fear that if I submitted myself to God's will you know surely he'd make me be a missionary in Africa to me that was kind of the epitome of sacrifice and certainly not something that I wanted to do well interestingly enough as I've grown and matured I, I know that God has not called me to do that but I have a lot of confidence that he's called me to do what I am doing. Now, you know, if I got a message to send me to Africa, I mean, it'd have to be repeated loud and long for me to recognize that it really was God, because I'm really confident that that is not his will for me. Interesting enough, enough I have a son who can't stand living in the United States and feels at home only in Africa. And we laugh about that, share stories and, and share our own hearts about that, how he has the confidence that that's where he needs to be. And I have the confidence the good old U.S. of A is where I need to be. But, you know, God calls us to different kind of things. So be comfortable in what you're doing if you really have that peace. Scott says, what about government grants? Are they difficult to get? Is Matthew Lesko on the up and up and are getting his books worth the money. Any other websites or ways to get grants? I'm looking for money to fund an invention of mine. Um, yes, yes, yes. 
<laughs> All right. To recap, are diff- government grants difficult to get? Yes, they are. There's an enormous amount of paperwork that you're going to go through. To, to, to me, I always tell people it's easier just to go make some money than it is to get a government grant. I mean, that's really my opinion on it. Uh, the paperwork, the bureaucracy you have to go through, it's not easy. There's not millions of dollars just sitting there waiting for somebody to walk along and grab a handful. And sometimes these late night TV commercials make it seem like that. Now, Matthew Lesko, Matthew Lesko is a, a wild and crazy guy. I mean, he and Steve Martin ought to do something together. He's the guy, Matthew Lesko is the guy with question marks on his suits and on his car and he's just branded himself in that way. So he does wild, amazing kind of commercials and get your attention. Now, here's the deal. Are his books worth getting? If you want to get government grants, then I would recommend you get Matthew Lesko's material. Now, here's how I frame that. What he has, what he shows you is readily available on government sites. He doesn't add much to information that's already available. But it may take you six months to compile it and go through and make sense of it. Whereas if you pay 35 bucks or whatever it is for his book at this point, I would recommend that's a better use of your time. Go ahead and get it. So there's nothing magical about what he's selling, but he makes the information easier to understand, pulls it together. Yeah, go ahead and get it if you want to do that. But I think there's a real big red flag over spending a whole lot of time trying to get a government grant, period, because it's few and far between the people that get grants. Now, if you're going to do some kind of humanitarian project, you know, there's grants that are more in line with that. But if you want something to fund an invention of yours, nah, don't waste your time trying to get a grant for that. Look for other ways to fund that. Now, there are a lot of ways to do that. Just recently, I addressed some questions on here, and I, I said one of the hot new things that's happening is crowdfunding. Now, that's a new term, but it means that you can put your idea out there. And if other people think it's a a fun idea, they'll donate money. Now, you know, we know 87% of the startup funds for all new ventures come from friends and family. 87%. That's what we call love money. So it's people who put money in, not because they think it's the greatest idea that was ever, ever came down the pike, but because they love you and care about you and want you to be successful. So, So there is that source. What we have with crowdfunding is a little bit more systematized. It's still the same concept, but it's a little more systematized. And there are really two ways to do that. One is to use sites like Kickstarter. And there are several others. If you go to to useful resources at 48days.com, just scroll down and I've got a section uh, Ashley just put it up there that deals with crowdfunding. So you can see what the options are there and just click on any of those and you check them out and see if it fits what you're doing. There are some that deal specifically like with new inventions that would be a better fit for you. And you put the idea out there. Then you can tell all your friends and family, hey, I've got this idea. I'd like you for you to look at it. And it's it's not as awkward, you know, as asking Uncle Harry for 10 grand to help you start your business. So it's a better way to do it. But now there's a little step up from that as well, and that is with the new site called ProFounder. And with that, people can put money in, but it's not just raw donations. They're putting money in, and you describe to them how they're going to get their money back. If you say that you're going to take 5% of the gross revenues over the first two years and distribute it to all the investors, 
boom, you can do that. But it's a way to legally structure it where you are raising funds. So it's in between this space where you're just hoping to get family and friends to give you money and going to the bank and getting money or getting an SBA loan or getting venture capital. So it's in between there. That's where I would put this crowdfunding, but it's it's really exciting some of the things that are happening there. So I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to spend 90% of your time looking for other ways to get funds for your invention and 10% on government grants because I think that's a very weak uh, possibility for you. Roberto says, I've been in the food service industry for over 20 years and no longer enjoy the long hours, the politics, or the stress. What do you think about a food service temporary services? In my experience, hotels and restaurants are always looking for staff. What are the bylaws and could I contract some of the HR and payroll services? Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yes, you can. I mean, you're on the right track. I mean, all we're talking about here is a service where you promote, you run ads in a Sunday paper if you need a temporary position, you know, contact me. And then you contact as well, food service, hospitality, hotels, whatever on that end, restaurants, and say, I'll supply workers for you, even on short notice. We got people ready to go. I mean, it's a great service. Now you're going to be in the same space as things like Ronstadt, Kelly Services, Manpower. Those are very established employment services, and you would be wise to explore what they're doing so you learn how to do it well. But yeah, it's very legitimate what you're talking about. If you're comfortable in that arena, this can be a very profitable business. I mean, I know people who are making tons of money because what happens, I mean, if the kind of fees that somebody pays, you know, employment services, I mean, if you are a recruiter, and you're going to recruit Dan Miller and you're going to place him as a software engineer in a company, you're going to get anywhere from 30 to 50% of his first year's income. I mean, we're talking a lion's share. Now, with what you're talking about, you're talking about temp services. That's a little different. But what that means is you get a share every stinking week that somebody is there. I've known people who have been temp employees in companies like General Motors where they've been there for eight years, but they're technically a temp where somebody's getting a cut of their pay every single week because they placed them there initially. Now, you know, when, when you do place people like this, there are typically two ways to do it. One is that the employer pays the fees and then one is that the applicant pays. And usually that's not them writing a check. It's taking a portion of what they get. So, Either way, just structure it, create a business plan for how that would look. You know, do some due diligence to check out other existing organizations that are providing temporary services. But this is something you can learn about in 30 days and develop your own business. And if you got the contacts, yep, it, it's a great business, one I'm a big believer in. You can make a lot of money doing it. Lisa says, Dan, your show is extremely motivating. How do I decide on a price for the pies and rolls I want to sell? wholesale and retail. Do I figure the cost in making one pie or a batch of rolls? Also, I'm having trouble establishing a business plan, not business savvy. Well, Lisa, yes, you need a business plan. Now, if when you say you're not business savvy, I mean, you don't have to become a CPA or get your MBA or anything like that, but you need to pretty well understand the basics of what you're going into here. A lot of times I see people who 
make big pie, make great pies. And six months later, you know, they're upside down and bankrupt because they haven't taken the time to understand the other components. You know, if you're going to have some kind of a shop, you're going to have lease agreements. You have to have sign permits, employees, workman comp insurance, all those kind of things that are part of running a business, even though you ultimately just enjoy baking pies. So don't back yourself in a corner by not addressing those business issues. Pull off my site, the business plan. I mean, I've got them multiple places. Go to useful resources and you can find a business plan there. Just open it up. It's free. You can open it up and just go through that. But it'll help you address the different areas of your business that you better at least have an understanding of. Now, you can get people to complement your skills in a lot of areas. You don't need to end up doing everything, but you need to be sure you know what those areas are and that it is being handled by somebody. Now, back to your question just about cost. Typically, you're going to want to get four to five times your cost when you sell a product. Now, let me go through, let's just take a pie. Let's take an apple pie that's going to sell on the counter at Cracker Barrel for $22. Now, they would have to buy that for no more than $11. So you get the formula there, pretty easy formula. They're going to sell it for double what they pay. That's called Keystone Markup. That's pretty typical as a starting point for anybody in a retail business. So if the pie sells for $22, they're going to have to get it for at least no more than $11. Now, what they really want is to not sell that pie for $22, though. Anyway, they want to sell it eight pieces for $3.95 each. So, you know, they're essentially getting $32 for the pie that they paid you $11 for. But that's okay. I mean, that's their... That's why they're in business. They look for creative ways to make money, but you have to look at what's a reasonable wholesale price. So we'll just kind of work with that $11. Now, if you're going to sell a pie to them for $11, then you want to have no more than $2 in that in terms of the ingredients. But this is where it gets a little tricky when you say, what is my cost? Because if you spend $2 for flour and sugar and apples, and the crust, and the pie tin that you have, you really have more than $2 in that, because you have to be realistic about the time required. If you hire a couple ladies to help you bake apple pies, you're paying those ladies. And if it takes one, you know, even 10 minutes of her time for just one pie, and you're paying that person, you know, $10 an hour, then you have to look at, you know, that's well, what is it going to be if you pay 10, 6, 10, 6, 10, 10. Well, anyway, you're going to be, let's say that it takes her 30 minutes start to finish, you know, so you're going to have another $5 in it just with that. Now, it wouldn't take that long for one pie, but be realistic about the labor costs that you're going to have going in there and also your overhead. If you're renting a commercial kitchen for this and you're paying $800 a month for the kitchen, then you're going to have that cost that you have to factor in as well. So just be realistic, but ultimately uh, you want to be able to have to be selling things for four to five times what your overall cost is for that. And you can create a good business model out of doing that. Boy, that's a, you know, I, I feel like that's a short answer to a very big question, but I mean, you're on the right track. I mean, I love to help people shape ideas like that, where you're going to sell something on the internet. And a lot of times people get confused. They think, well, if I can buy, you know, belts, overrun belts, and I can buy them for, 
uh, $3 a piece and sell them for $4, if I get a thousand of them, you know, I just made $4,000. Well, that's not true. It never works that way. You're going to have to have them shipped to you. You're going to have marketing costs. What are you going to do to promote those? And you're going to have your own time invested. So those things are real factors in cost, even if they're soft cost as compared to hard cost. But don't let yourself again get backed into a corner because you haven't taken into account your time, the light bill, the gas bill, rent, the sign permits, employee cost, you know, those kind of things in your real cost. Now, if you have a question, you know, again, you can always submit a question or a follow up to a question on the little template given you on the podcast link at 48days.com or just shoot that to askdan at 48days.com. Some of you I know are out there riding around when you get questions or listening to this and you want to just shoot me a quick email, that's fine as well. You know, I had a, a magazine editor ask me this week, said, Dan, I'm looking for a checklist. If somebody has figured out that their life isn't working, what are the steps to reshaping your work or creating a new opportunity? Let me give you the five points that I gave her. If you know your life isn't working, what are the steps to reshaping your work or creating a new opportunity? I said, number one, 85% of the process of having the confidence of an authentic fit comes from looking inward first. So look inward first. Don't look at who's hiring, where the best opportunities are, what the hottest franchises are. Those are recipes for a Band-Aid solution and ultimate frustration. Look inward. You know, we often get the cart before the horse by looking at those other kind of things. But look inward to really get a clean, fresh look at what's authentic about you. What do you care about? That's where you want to start. Number two, trust your passions. Don't be deterred because you've been told your idea is not realistic or practical. You know, passion drives success in all kinds of unusual ventures. A lot of you have seen either in person or pictures at least of the eagle that's carved in a cedar tree as you approach my office, the sanctuary here in Franklin, Tennessee. Well, that was done by a lady who got a college degree at 42 years old, was a burned out corporate executive, realized as she described it, she was having her soul sucked out of her and uh, reconnected with some early childhood passions where she had worked in wood with her daddy. And now she is a grown up wood sculptor and does amazing work. I mean, that's the kind of thing, you know, people would say, are you nuts? You got to be kidding me. You're going to leave a corporate job with benefits, medical care, retirement insurance. You're going to leave that and go out and start carving trees. Well, if you're going to save your soul from being sucked out, believe me, it's worth it. And all those other things that I just mentioned as benefits, they all just translate into money. If you could walk out of there and triple your income as she essentially has, can you take care of retirement, medical care, insurance, those kind of things? Absolutely. And those are not things to keep you trapped in doing something that's not a good fit or is not allowing you to live out your calling. Well, let me go back here. Number one, then, is looking inward. Number two is trust your passions. Number three, create a clear plan of action. See, passion and enthusiasm alone are not enough. You've got to have a strategy and a clear timeline. Number four is look forward. Now, this is something that can be a real roadblock. Discouragement, resentment, guilt, 
depression, those are emotions that are connected with looking at the past, looking at what you're coming from. Let me just run that up the flagpole again. When I talk to somebody who is experiencing discouragement, resentment, guilt, anger, frustration, depression, those are things that are focused on what has already happened. Confidence, enthusiasm, boldness overtake those negative emotions as you become clear about what you're moving to. So a real key to carving out a new direction for your life is get clear on what you're moving to, not just what you're moving from. It concerns me greatly when I see people, you know, just pull the plug, burn the bridge because they know what they're frustrated with. They hate it. They're never going back. Well, that's maybe a motivator to help you start thinking, but you better very quickly move to the clarity of what you're moving to not just what you're moving from. Number five, commit to one year of focused action without looking back. Don't second guess yourself. When you commit to it, commit. Now in starting up new things, I ought to provide a little caveat there because when I start something new, I usually don't have to depend on that 100% for income to meet the needs of my family. I mean, are the kids going to be hungry if my new idea doesn't create money in the first 30 days? No, because I'm going to make sure I've got another plan in place where I'm producing income. Now, it it sounds in some ways like I haven't, in fact, then burned the bridges and just committed to going forward. Yeah, I have. But but I know what it takes to start new ideas, new businesses. When I started, I started a business one time where I was doing auto accessories for the new car dealers. I'd done my market research. I knew they were going to want what I was going to be providing and I was prepared to provide it, but I still didn't know how quickly that was going to take off. So I knew again with my affinity for cars, I knew that I could buy and sell cars and create enough income to meet the basic needs of our family. Now that was years ago and my benchmark was $2,000 a month. I needed to create $2,000 a month that would cover our basic expenses. So I was prepared to do that as long as I needed to. I could always do that. You know, go buy an old car, clean it up, put it in the front yard, sell it to a college kid. I mean, I knew what college kids were looking for. I knew where to find them. It was, they were, those were pretty easy transactions. Now, in that case, it turned out I had projected that I may need to do that for six to 12 months where I would depend on that as the basic income as I slowly grew my business. Now, what happened in that? auto accessories for the new car dealers, it took off like a rocket. So it really, I only did that out of necessity for a couple of months. And by then the business was in fact creating income. And that's the kind of thing I want you to expect and anticipate and plan for as well. But um, always have something that you know, you aren't going to put your family in jeopardy. Now, let me go on to the questions here. Dan, should I find one job and stay with it until I retire? Well, lots of luck with that plan because that is just not going to happen. I mean, I can't imagine any company, any industry, any profession at this point where you could just get one job and stay with it until you retire. Now, keep in mind how I segment in 48 Days to the Work You Love, I segment the distinctions between vocation, career, and job. Vocation being the big picture. That ought to include your calling, purpose, mission, and mission, destiny. Career is a subset of that. Job is the smallest component. Now, what I'm talking about here is a job. 
So even if you're going to be a registered nurse for your entire life, yeah, that may be true, but are you going to find one job and stay there until you retire? The chances of that are extremely slim. See, the new stats, I've got some new stats in the updated version of 48 Days right now that I just did where the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics tell us that between the ages of 18 and 42, a person will have an average of 10.8 jobs. So it means in that first season of life in the workplace, the average job is going to be 2.2 years in length. Now, we know that for those in their 20s, the average length of job right now is 13 months. So it drops down even more there. But So if we take 2.2 years, I mean, you have to recognize that's okay. So if you've had a job for three years and now something's happened to that job, whether you're just frustrated and burned out or the company's folding or the company says, we don't need you anymore. I mean, don't beat yourself up that you're right on the average. You're over the average. If you have something last for three years, now the average job overall is still about 3.2 years because there are people that make it past that. And then uh, older people actually keep positions longer periods of time. It's more volatile on the front end where you flip and then ultimately. So, so you may have a first job for, you know, eight months and the next one you have for 12 months and then you keep working your way up and ultimately you have a job where you're there for eight years. But believe me, it's going to change. Don't even try to make yourself think that you're going to have the same job for 35 years and get the gold watch. I mean, personally, I don't see how that's even an attractive model. I know for some of you who aren't gluttons for change as I am, that may seem appealing, but really, I mean, think about it. If you get a job when you're 22 years old, 30 years pass, you're 52 years old, you better be a different person at 52. You better have different skill sets refined and developed by then you better be a candidate for a whole lot of things at that point that you weren't a candidate for at 22 if you're not you then are very vulnerable if you've done nothing to refine and build new skills learn anything new go to workshops seminars read books and so on in those 30 years you're in a very precarious position you better be polishing your resume so it's not unhealthy in any way, and it doesn't show up as a red flag either. A lot of people ask me about that. Well, golly, you know, I changed jobs twice in the last five years. and sent a red flag in my resume. No, it's not. I mean, in some industries, especially in like the more technical areas, some companies look uh, down their nose at somebody who's been at the same place for 10 years. They think, wow, is this person not a change agent? Are they not keeping up with things? You know, are they just trying to be a plotter and just maintain enough to keep the same job? So be careful about having it viewed negatively if you've been too long in one position. Now, all kinds of variables. These are just big swipe principles that I'm throwing out here. Apply them to your particular situation. Dan, what if I don't want another corporate job? Do I have any options? Yes, in fact, you do. Now, when you say a corporate job, most people are thinking about, you know, Microsoft and Boeing and McDonald's and IBM, these companies that have, you know, 20, 30,000 employees. You have to realize 52.8% of the companies in America have one to four employees. Now, do you get that? 
52.8%, over half of the companies in America have one to four. That's how tiny the majority of companies are. If we move up and look at companies that even have 99 employees, only 2.6% of the companies in America have more than 99. 99 is not a big company. I mean, my buddy Dave Ramsey has 300. I mean, he's a, he's a big company at this point. He's not even considered a small business. But, I mean, that, that puts him in such a small category. I mean, he is in then that 2.6% of the companies in America because of the size, number of employees that he has at this point. So if you want to, if you are, are not interested in another corporate job, you would be amazed at the diversity the variety, the excitement, the innovation going on in a whole lot of these companies that are never going to show up in the front page of the paper. They aren't going to be running ads for employment. They're small, innovative, streamlined companies where all kinds of exciting things are happening. So you may want to move out of corporate America and just focus your job search on those companies that are not the big, you know, Fortune 500 companies. Now, you can find out about these. I mean, go to your Chamber of Commerce. Get the Chamber of Commerce directory. It'll have all these little mom and pop companies in there. See what they do. Talk to them. Target your job search there. I mean, you can get diff all kinds of uh, business directories that'll direct you all the way down to those, you know, Hoover's business directory. Resources like that that you can get at your library will access you to these smaller streamlined businesses and have some of those on your radar. I mean, here in, in Nashville, you can grab the Nashville Business Journal. If your town, most towns have a business journal for that town. They're the same all over the place. Get that business journal. They're going to profile small local businesses. And so you'll be able to see in their companies, maybe that just got some venture capital put in or just got a new source of funding and you know they're going to be growing. They're looking for new players. They may only have five employees right now and they may be looking to add 15. I know a company right now that about 60 days ago had two people in the company and they are scouring the country for people that they can bring on board because they're going to grow to like 300 employees really, really quickly because of the nature of what they're doing. And they have the funds to back it up. It's a very exciting kind of venture. Well, let me go on here. Now, th this is one, you know, that I get repeatedly. I could take a uh, hundred questions a week and kind of form them into this. You know, Dan, it's uh, why do you encourage starting new businesses when we know that most businesses fail? I love this question because I guess because it drives me nuts. Don't most businesses fail? Well, think about how business stats are comprised. And, and you know, once upon a time, somebody churned out this ridiculous stat that four out of five small businesses fail in their first five years of operation. Now, nobody can really pinpoint what that means. But if you... You know, I mean, try to figure that out. Prove to me that that's really true after you hear what I'm going to say. For one thing, there are some segments of businesses that have unbelievable stats at being in business long after they start. One of those being Amish businesses. A friend of mine, Eric Weisner, wrote a book last year titled 
Um, Success Made Simple. Golly, I almost forgot the title. Success Made Simple, Why Amish Businesses Thrive. He profiles Amish businesses in there and looks at all the reasons that they are just almost fail-proof. They just start and make money, and there's a whole lot of reasons for that. I mean, they use apprentices. They use family members to help keep labor costs down. They build the business out in the back of the cornfield instead of going in town and renting expensive commercial space. There's a whole lot of reasons for that, but it's really phenomenal to look at the stats there compared to any other stats we might compile. But here's the thing about small businesses failing. I live in Williamson County, Tennessee. So we're in an area where we have really lush grass and rich trees and beautiful flowers and all that. So obviously, being in the landscape business is really appealing. You hear me talk about it a lot because there's a whole lot of people in this area that are in the landscaping business. So Joe Smith gets a lawnmower. He's in the landscaping business. Two years later, he's got 60 customers. Things are going okay. And he starts looking around, figuring out, how can I make my business more profitable than what it is now? And he realizes he has great customers. They are candidates for selling more expensive items than just mowing their grass for you know 50 bucks a week or whatever it happens to be. Of course, here, yeah, it's going to be 100 or 120 here. But he's looking for ways to do that because he realizes, you know what? Anybody can get in the lawn mowing business. Anybody can run by Home Depot, whip out their credit card, you know, put a lawnmower in the back of their truck, and they're in, they're in a landscape business. It happens all the time. So if it, how can I set myself apart from all these other people that are doing very similar things? So he realizes I could do screened-in porches. I could do gazebos. I could do stamps concrete sidewalks. I could do water features. Any of my customers are candidates for those kind of things. So he decides, you know what, I'm going to do water features. I mean, I had one done in uh, at the front of our house last year, $10,000. Now there's a lot of margin in something like that as compared to just mowing the grass. So he decides I'm going to do water features. So his little business is no longer Joe Smith Landscaping. It's Joe Smith Water Features. After two years in business, he changed. He's now doing water features. How is that going to show up in the statistics regarding new business failures? It's going to be shown as a failure. He started the business, and two years later, it's not around anymore. What does that indicate to the government keeping track of statistics? That business failed. Did that business fail? Heck, no, it didn't fail. Joe figured out, as an entrepreneur, as entrepreneurs do, how to do something better, and he moved into that very successfully. I mean, most entrepreneurs I know went through three or four businesses before they found something that really kind of clicked. And even good entrepreneurs often change things every four or five years. But those changes don't mean that the business was a failure. It means that they very successfully moved into something else. That's what typically happens in small businesses. So it drives me nuts when we hear these figures. Well, gee, Dan, don't you know that 80% of all businesses fail? Well, I don't believe it. I just flat don't believe it. And I, I mean, if, if, if that were true, we ought to have a whole lot of entrepreneurs out here who try a business. Two years later, they say, oh, man, this, is, this just isn't going to work. I need to just polish my resume and go back and get a job. I mean, how often do you hear that happening? Now, does it happen? Sure. It, but it's 
pretty stinking rare because once somebody has tasted the benefits of having their own business, they're going to figure it out, even if it means going through three or four ideas until they find an idea that works. All right. Here's an interesting one. Dan, are there any new ideas left to start? Now, this this has come up since Adam and Eve. I mean, really, we could track it back that far. I mean, there have been times when uh, people wanted to close down the patent office because there wasn't anything left to invent, surely. <laughs> well, I, I hope you've been around long enough to track the changes just in communication or just in music. I mean, let, let's just go through that. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, eight tracks and 33 and a third LPs. Those are obviously gone. You know, we go to eight tracks and then we go to cassettes and then we go to CDs and then you go to, you know, geez, just your iPhone. And I mean, the, the, the changes have been phenomenal. That's going to continue. It's not like we've run out of options. I mean, I, I love watching the changes in transportation. I mean, being a car guy, golly, I love the new things coming around. It, it grieves me that the average guy on the street can't start a car company anymore. You know, I love the old stories about Bricklin and Tucker, people like that who just started making good cars. Now it's so heavily regulated that it's almost impossible for an average guy to do that. But there are still people who are figuring out how to do that and will do that well. But the changes in transportation, I mean, you think we're going to see cars that don't have the friction of tires running on the road that'll be, you know, supported by air streams and, you know, we'll move over water or land just as efficiently either one. I mean, you better believe it. I mean, the Jetsons aren't just somebody's pipe dream. I mean, those kind of things are always visions of what's to come. I was reading just this morning a book, How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, but it's amazing to look at the things that he sketched out that were not brought into reality until years and years after his death. But he was able to see, to imagine, to think about those things that would make all kinds of things better. You know, math, science, transportation. I mean, he envisioned things like a helicopter way before it was ever brought into reality. So yes, there are plenty of ideas left to start. I mean, I don't care if 80% of what we have now, you know, won't be around five years from now. We're going to have things that are newer, better, more efficient. I was just talking to my heating and air conditioning guy. I've got a unit out in one of our buildings. And uh, we were talking about the new green heating and air conditioning units that are so much more efficient than what we had just a few years ago. And he's about got me talked into just upgrading, even though we could repair what we've got right now. But, you know, look at look at even what's happened in people working on the Internet. I mean, who would have imagined that we would have eh, somewhere between six and eight million people today working on the Internet as their primary focus for the work that they do? Now, we didn't even have that option a few years ago. But those are the kind of things that are going to keep developing again and again. Hang on to your hats. Don't worry about ideas being exhausted. Um, you know, it's funny, you know, sometimes my kids asked me about that as they were growing up, you know, hasn't everything been invented that will ever be invented? Well, no, and of course, they're old enough now to realize that's not true. But I love to see little kids who do dream things. They don't have the constraints of reality 
that we get locked into as adults where we somehow have blinders on. But I love to see what little kids see. I mean, that's why I love to take my little granddaughter on a walk through the woods. She sees things that I don't see. I mean, I've got eyes, but she just notices things in ways that I don't recognize them because I've become used to seeing them in a particular way. So if you want to stretch your ideas, spend a little time with a three-year-old. You'll get a whole lot of new ideas and then put a plan together and do it. Well, here's one. Dan, if I share my idea, won't somebody steal it? Now, this is one of those, again, that's as old as Adam and Eve. Somehow, we just get the sense that if we come up with a great idea, we're the only one that has ever had the idea. And if we share it, the first person we share it with is going to steal it. And they're going to make a million dollars. And we're going to go on with the same life we have. Well, none of those components hold water at all. People around you are extremely busy with the life that they have today. Most people can't figure out how to have five minutes to spend thinking about something new. Now, that's unfortunate. That's another issue, but that's true. They aren't going to stop what they're doing and try to develop your idea. The other part of that is ideas are not worth anything. Now, I obviously have to back that up with something. They are theoretically, but an idea in and of itself will not put any money in your pocket or anybody else's. It's the person who develops a plan of action who will benefit from that. That person will put money in their pocket and change their future. If you're a person that can put a plan together, then your idea has value. But now that really comes back to, I have oftentimes have people tell me, well, I've got an idea that would really be beneficial to McDonald's or to Reebok or to IBM. You know, I want them to pay me for the idea. And I you have to realize your idea isn't worth anything. Now, if you can produce, well, here, here's an example. I had a young guy that I was working with several years ago, and he happened to be a weightlifter. So he had developed a glove that was a better weightlifting glove, the way that it strapped to your hand and strapped to the bar. Now, I'm not a weightlifter, but I took his word for it. He says, yes, it's really better. And he wanted to you know, license or sell that idea to Nike or Reebok or Adidas or somebody like that. And I said, you know, there's no chance. You're not going to be able to do that. But here's what I want you to do. Make a prototype. Just make a rough pair of those gloves as you are describing them then I want you to go to 20 health and fitness centers workout gyms you ask them if they would buy those if you can produce those would they buy those he did exactly that they said yes they would they were ecstatic about what he showed them I was thrilled that he had a viable idea he went ahead and had a local manufacturer make those. The cost was too high. His profit margin was too small, but it didn't matter. He was building a realistic market to prove that people wanted his product. He sold about 10,000 pairs of those gloves. Then he did have a story to tell. Then he did have something to take to a big company where he had some leverage and negotiated a licensing deal, which is exactly what he did. It's much the same thing that I did with the first edition of 48 Days to the Work You Love. I was an unknown. If I had gone to a publisher, they'd say, yeah, right. You know, there's only 150 books on the market on how to find a job. You know, why would yours be any different? I didn't talk to publishers. I just started providing what people were asking me for. I was doing workshops and seminars, coaching people. They were asking for materials. 
I put together just some real rough material, started selling them. Well, I sold a couple million dollars worth of that rough little stuff, a little spiral bound thing with a cassette tape that went with it. Then I had publishers knocking on my door. I never went to look for a publisher. I had publishers contact me saying, wow, we see that you're selling a lot of things. We hear about you everywhere we go. You know, would you consider working with us? Well, that puts you in a very different vantage point than just going to them saying, I have an idea. So share your idea. If you have an idea, tell everybody that you see. That's my suggestion. My suggestion is you use the eight-foot rule. Whenever you get within eight feet of somebody, tell them what you're doing. Tell them about it so that they can give you suggestions about how to make that better. You have a whole lot more to risk in not sharing your idea with somebody and trying to bring it to market than you do in sharing it thinking that somebody else may steal it. Well, wow, we've whipped through the whole session here today already. We're running out of time. We've been taking care of business. I love talking about these business ideas. I love seeing the questions that you send in every week. I hope it's beneficial to get a broad overview on these issues that impact all of us. I learn from the questions and the research I do to, to then answer them. I hope you do as well. I appreciate you being part of the 48 Days family. As you are continuing on this process to either find or create work that you love, I know you're doing that. Thanks for being involved. Have a great week.